Today's story is about someone who has been called the First Lady of Physics, the Chinese Madame Curie, and the Queen of Nuclear Research. Those are some good titles. They are, aren't they? I don't know how I feel about using someone else's reference for that person. Oh, yeah. I kind of feel it takes... You gotta be the first version of you, not the next version of someone else. like, you do you. But anyway, anyway. (laughs) So she's been described as one of the most important physicists of the 20th century, yet she missed out on a Nobel Prize. Some people say overlooked, in fact, and few people outside of physics have heard of her. In fact, not enough people inside physics have heard of her. So today we're going to change that. Today. You are listening to Surprisingly Brilliant, a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising yet brilliant ideas, discoveries or people. I'm Greg Foote. And I'm Marin Hunsberger. We take it in turns to tell these science history stories. And today I am the storyteller. Which means I'm receiving the story today and I don't know what's about to happen, but I'm really excited. I think... You're going to like this one. I, I have a feeling, Greg. <laughs> the, problem, the implication of that is that there's some you don't like. I was going to say, I, mm, the problem being I love all of them. So. Can you imagine if you just went, yeah, that last one you did, Greg. Yawn. Terrible. I'm so bored. No, they're all brilliant, surprisingly. Oh, see what you did there. Ten points. Yes. So let me introduce you to today's expert guest. This is Haiyan Gao, Professor of Physics at Duke University, North Carolina. My research is uh, experimental on nuclear physics, more at the interface between nuclear physics and particle physics. I am particularly interested in understanding or probing the internal structure of proton and the neutron. Fantastic. So let's talk about Shen Xin Wu. Um, can I just check I'm saying her name correctly? Um, well, the, <laughs> you want to learn the American way or the Chinese way? Probably the American way, uh, but you can, you can tell me both, please. Well, I don't know. In the US, people just call her C.S. Wu or Madame Wu. Um, her name is really Jian uh, Xiong uh, Wu or Wu Jian Xiong. That's the Chinese way. Amazing. I'm going to go for C.S. Wu. Uh, or just woo. I think that's a good shout. Thank you for asking her, by the way, because I think that's very important. People's names are important, but also with different languages naming conventions, if they're the what we would say as the last name mm-hmm. is actually what they say first, it can be very confusing. So we're going to go with CS Wu, but there you have it, the actual Chinese pronunciation. <laughs> so I asked Haiyan what CS Wu means to her okay. um, because, uh, and it's such a wonderful conversation I had actually for like over an hour with uh, with Haiyan. And what was great was when we reached out to her and we said we're doing an episode on CS Wu, she was like, yes, oh my goodness. She's been waiting for yeah, this. Yeah, this is amazing. So I asked her um, what she means to her. Madame Wu really uh, meant a lot to me. And I, you know, I grew up in a family in Shanghai and my parents have two children, uh, myself and my younger sister. And um, so Madame Wu and also Madame Curie really have been my role models uh, growing up. And they both, as you know, both were experimental nuclear uh, physicists in many ways. I, you know, chosen nuclear physics, experimental nuclear physics as my career path had a lot to do with these two you know, brilliant uh, role models for for me and for many other uh, young women, you know, interested in science internationally. First of all, 
Madam Wu. Yes, absolutely. I want to be called <laughs> Madam something for the rest of my Madam life. Madam Hunsberger. Yes, please. That'd be excellent. And also, Haiyan, I think that's such an like a perfect personal story about how representation really matters. And the fact that people have talked about C.S. Wu, even if she got overlooked for something like a Nobel Prize. We'll get to that. Exactly. Spoiler alert. Still inspired someone like Haiyan to go into something like, I don't know, probing the internals of protons. Casual, fine, easy, cool. Her research is amazing. so (laughs) awesome. Haiyan Gao's research is in quantum chromodynamics. Oh my god, wait, that's like QCD. Colors of quarks? So it's it's the binding together of quarks by gluons to make protons and neutrons using the strong force. I know my brain was absolutely blown, but we're not going into that. We're not going into that. Okay, so. We need to do an episode on (laughs) Haiyan. C.S. Wu. She's born May 31st, 1912, in a small town near Shanghai. The first challenge she faces is that the China that she's born into is one where girls are expected to bind their feet and support the patriarchy. Woof. Fortunately for Wu, though, two things are in her favour. The first is that the year before her birth, so 1911, there's been a revolution. And that means that you've got the New Republic of China. Attitudes are at least starting to look like they could change. And, and the second factor is her father. Her father uh, was a, a, a principal of a girls' school, and he was extremely supportive of Madame Wu. And uh, when she was growing up, and if you think about that, it's actually very remarkable and also amazing. Her father was very, very encouraging her to pursue, you know, knowledge to study. How great is that? So, so her father is a principal at girls' school, and that means that she gets to go to her dad's school. Plus, he's really supportive of her kind of pursuit of knowledge. So he always makes sure she's got books and magazines to feed her curiosity. From what I read, she's really close to him. And that's incredibly progressive of him at the time. I mean, in, in this era where that is not what is traditional for women, like that is good on him. Yeah, he'll come back in the story again later on. Um, He was clearly a a brilliant man. So at the age of 10, 11, she goes to school. It's about 50 miles away. And I want to know what was that school like? Normal school. Again, it's a school for girls, I think. And they, the school is really was for uh, the training of teachers. So that is the school uh, she went to. So it's like a little bit like teacher preparation school, um, like a professional kind of, you know, school. So she's essentially following in her father's footsteps. Right? Mm-hmm. She's really keen on knowledge. And um, so she's going to a school that trains teachers. Well, and I feel like I've run into this in a couple of my episodes too, where that is, if you do go to school as a woman, that's kind of what you're training to do because that's a very expected career path that is Mm. one of the acceptable paths to higher education for women in times when you weren't necessarily getting a degree to be a researcher, you were probably getting a degree to be a teacher. And it's when she's at school, those six years at school, that she just falls in love with physics. I mean, who wouldn't? Yeah. So uh, 1929, she gets a place to study at the National Central University in Nanjing. Well, and how rare is that? I mean, for a woman at the time to be able to go, I mean, I imagine that's like... She's probably one of the only ones. She's definitely on a path that is a very rare path. Yeah. She's actually on the maths course, but, you know, she loves physics, so she switches to physics. And she's absolutely captivated by the atom. That entire era was uh, remarkable for physics. And um, so I think she just, you know, found physics um, to be fascinating. Well, and this is in the 30s, right? And so this is when our understanding of the atom is really crystallizing. We're trying to figure out what exactly it is, how it works, what's in it, what's yeah, going on. Yeah, yeah, all right. Let me set the scene for you. So the year before Wu was born, 1911, Ernest Rutherford has worked out that the nucleus is very small, it's very dense. Over in and it's, Cambridge. And it's positively charged. Yeah. 
back home for me. Um, and then the year before Wu goes to school, so 1922, Niels Bohr suggests an atomic model where electrons are sat in orbitals and you fill one orbital up before you move to the next one, then you fill that up. And he uses that to explain the patterns that you see in the periodic table. Like how elements interact with each other, they're trading electrons around, how molecules are formed. That's Bohr is really our originator of our modern understanding of atoms and how they behave. Mm-hmm. And then 1923, so that's while Wu is at school, you've got de Broglie, and he's presenting the wave-particle duality. So this is his whole idea that they can act as a particle or a wave, depending mm. on what they're doing, and kind of show those similar Confusing. sort of behaviours. But wonderful. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then a few years later, just before Wu leaves school, so 1927, you've got Heisenberg putting forward his uncertainty principle, right? The whole notion that you, you can only know position or velocity, you can't know both. Right, so like as soon as you start to try and observe one of them, the other one... It all goes to pot. ...will change. (laughs) (laughs) And then the year before she goes to university, 1929, you've got Cockroft and Walton. They build an early linear accelerator to smash protons into lithium, producing something called alpha particles, which we'll kind of get to and, and use a little bit later on. And then just to round this out, when she's at university, 1929 to 1934, you've got Schrodinger mm, suggesting... Oh, it, yeah, his cat, his <laughs> world-famous cat. Was it alive? Was it dead? We'll never know. We'll never know. And he's suggesting that electrons should not be seen as particles in orbit around a nucleus, but instead being somewhere in a, a particular cloud. Mm. I remember that at school when we when we jumped from like the chemistry where it is in the orbit to like those pictures of P and D and S orbitals. Yeah. And, I, and I just remember someone going, yeah, they've been lying to you. <laughs> They've been lying to you the whole time. I was like, I feel oh. betrayed. Yeah. Actually, that is also how I felt in chemistry because it's like, well, which one are we talking about right now? Which one is true? What are we looking at? What's they just change the lie every year, basically. But maybe that's maybe that's what science is. It's like if you're looking at <laughs> physics, it looks like this. It's almost like a, another version of Schrodinger or Heisenberg. It's like if you're looking at physics, it's this way. If you're looking at chemistry, it's this way. And it can't be both. <laughs> Uncertainty principle. Extreme uncertainty. The uncertainty principle is really actually just studying chemistry. You've also got antiparticles kind of discovered by Paul Dirac. And then the neutron is discovered in 1932. um, And then it's, you know, neutral and it sits alongside the protons in the nucleus. And that kind of gets us up to speed. That's what's been going on. Really exciting time. That's why she loves the atom. This is like a golden age of particle physics, of understanding what's going on in nature at the atomic level. We're really starting to figure it out. Yeah. Right. Over to my chat with Haiyan. What does she do after university? She actually briefly went to Zhejiang University as for maybe another year before she was encouraged uh, or she, um, you know, decided to go to uh, University of Michigan for her PhD. Michigan apparently was a huge place for many aspiring Chinese young, you know, st- physics students who actually uh, wanted to pursue PhD. Well, and that's interesting because University of Michigan has still has an amazing nuclear science program. They're one of the the biggest nuclear engineering and nuclear science programs in the states still. Yeah, so that's where she's planning to go. Mm. Things don't exactly go to plan. Best laid plans. We're going to get back to that though. I think she's on a steamship. She's on the way from China to the United States. But first, let's have a quick break. Welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. Today is the story of C.S. Wu, the often overlooked queen of nuclear research, as she's being called. We left her crossing the ocean with her friend, actually. It's 1936. And after a long time traveling in the steamship, they arrive in San Francisco. Oh, which is where we are now. Which is where we are recording this podcast. Yeah. Oh, 
So she has some downtime before her classes at uh, Michigan are supposed to begin. So she decides to just head over to Berkeley, check out the world-class physics department at the University of California. It's a great spot. While she's there, she meets two people who are about to change the direction of her life and that lead her to turn her back on that place at Michigan State. Intriguing. The two people who she met, I think one is her husband, um, uh, Luke Yuan. Not at the time. Uh, you know, it wasn't yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, another, um, <laughs> not at the time, right. So someone, but uh, Luke Yuan was introduced by someone she met in Berkeley, I mean, er- area. That person's name is Victor Young, and I don't know what that person um, was doing at the time, but he was the one uh, introduced C.S. Wu to uh, Yuan because Yuan was already a graduate student at Berkeley. So she meets a man. She meets a man who will later become her husband. Who is also a nuclear physics yes. fanatic. I also read that he's the grandson of the first president of the Republic of China. Whoa. And self-proclaimed emperor of China. High roller. Yeah. <laughs> but the second person to meet. Wait, so that means that Queen is really a, a good nomer in many, in more ways than one. <laughs> and the second person she meets is Ernest Lawrence. He's the, the young director of the Radiation Laboratory. Okay, wait, this is crazy because I currently work at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, which was founded by Ernest Lawrence. Thought you might spot a name there. Wow, this is really... And Lawrence has been working on essentially making a smaller particle accelerator, a, a circular one. He makes the cyclotron. The cyclotron, exactly. <laughs> so he's, he's really impressed by Wu and actually he invites her to join his team to pursue her PhD there and she jumps at the chance. Oh, that's fantastic. She originally was planning on going to Michigan and but, but later, you know, she changed her mind. I guess I'm joking, but must be the California weather, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I got my PhD from Caltech, or, uh, I mean, from California. So I think that by the time, you know, I got my degree, I felt the weather was too nice to be real. So I decided to leave California. Anyway, so that's a joke. Um, so she actually <laughs> stayed, uh, visited California Bay Area, and then she, you know, decided to stay at Berkeley. I Love high-end, number one. Yeah, she's great. Number two, I would also not give up California weather ever, much less to move to Michigan, where the winters are, uh, let's just say... Risk? Yeah, good word. (laughs) Good word for it. So I am not surprised. I mean, she meets someone that she really connects with. You've got the California weather, and she's asked to stay and work with Ernest Lawrence on some really cool physics. Absolutely. On the flip side, though, um, it must have been a bit of a, a shift in life and culture and way of living. I did read somewhere that she finds that kind of culture shift from China to America quite hard. Sure. Um, I read that she often actually chose to wear the traditional high-necked dress Mm. underneath her lab coat, but she loves the work, absolutely loves it. And I asked Haiyan what her life was like at Berkeley. She always went to the same Chinese restaurant to have her meals almost like every day. And at that time, it was like a quarter. She could, you know, have a nice meal. And that's the place she pretty much went all the time, you know, and then she always focused on her uh, research. Only say that she must just be so happy. However, she is aware how bad things are getting back home in China. So the year after she arrives in California, 1937, Japan invades China. By the end of 1937, 42,000 civilians in her home province of Nanjing 
have been raped or murdered by Japanese troops. Yeah, Nanjing was uh, a pretty black mark on history in mm. the lead up to, to World War II. And she loses contact with her family. Oh, jeez. And she won't actually hear from them for eight years. What? Yeah, can you imagine that? No, I mean, and she's already homesick. She's, you know, wants to go to the same Chinese restaurant every day to make her feel a little more connected to something that feels familiar. Oh, God, I can't even imagine how hard that would be. So she throws all of her energy into her work. And in a later interview, I actually read that she said, I have always felt that in physics and probably in other endeavours too, you must have total commitment. It is not just a job, it is a way of life. Oh, I love that. And plus, you know, there's so much inspiring, exciting stuff going on around her. In 1939, while she's there, Lawrence is awarded the Nobel Prize for Physics. He's a great dude. For that cyclotron particle accelerator. Hi, and I'll tell us more. He invented particle accelerator um, called cyclotron, which which has been actually used even nowadays. A lot of places do have a... Nowadays we call... It's kind of funny. It's all relative speaking. Nowadays we call those kind of machine will give you a relatively low energy um, particle beams, right? I can imagine, you know, it must be extremely exciting, you know, to work with uh, a mentor, you know, uh, in the same place. Why? major exciting um, you know discoveries are uh, being made or you know at the verge of being uh, invented. I can totally see where Wu is coming from with that. It's like you want to be fully immersed in it. And for someone who loves it so much, it really is who you are. It's not just a job. And one of my favorite things about the cyclotron is its applications in medicine, which she mentioned at the end there, how it basically the cyclotron was and is the basis of a lot of our nuclear medicine. So how we do nuclear imaging or radiation treatment for cancer. Super cool. Mm. So 1940, Wu completes her PhD. She stays on at Berkeley uh, as a research assistant and she's soon to solve a problem that has been plaguing nuclear physicists and doing so will lead a professor of physics at a university by the name of Robert Oppenheimer to call her, quote, the authority (gasps) in the new science of nuclear fission. Oppenheimer says that about Wu? Apparently so. But before we get to that, she's going to go through some good times and some not so good times. As we mentioned earlier, she gets married to Luke Yuan, um, the physicist that she met when she first visited. But then Yuan gets a job in New Jersey. Oh. And Wu just can't seem to climb the academic ladder. But at that time, I think that it was very difficult, you know, for universities to hire uh, a woman. Her first job, as I read, was a, a teaching position at Smith College, uh, which, you know, is a very top women's college. Um, but, you know, her job mostly was teaching and she really, her passion, uh, you know, she, I don't think she disliked teaching, but I, you know, she really likes, liked uh, to do research. It's what you said, right? <laughs> she is research, physics, nuclear research. That's what she loves. But right now she's in teaching. However, things are about to improve. She's about to solve this massive problem that none of the men could. Of course. Right. And um, before I tell you that, I need to introduce you to Enrico Fermi. <gasps> Another name I'm sure you've heard of. Sounds familiar. Um, Fermi is an Italian-American physicist. So he's recently been awarded the Nobel Prize in physics. That was in 1938. That's the year before Wu's mentor, Ernest Lawrence, gets it. And that's for his work in, in nuclear science? Yeah. Actually, I asked Hyen to kind of expand on it a little bit for me. He basically used neutron as a particle beam to bombard on other nuclear targets and then to produce different nuclear species. I guess he perhaps did not realize that, you know, what 
he was doing, uh, some of the work he was doing actually really was because of the uh, nuclear fission, right? He actually later, after other people have demonstrated it was fission, and he actually was, you know, pioneer. So fission is splitting the atom, right? Crudely, you fire a neutron at a big nucleus, it splits into two smaller, lighter nuclei. And releases and a releases lot energy. of energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and more neutrons as it does so. Uh, got and it. However, Fermi gets the Nobel Prize, but he doesn't believe that fission is possible. Wait, so he did it and he won for it, but he doesn't think it happened? Mm-hmm. He doesn't think that fission is possible. He, he, he thinks that he's kind of creating new elements, essentially, oh, through this process. Oh, he doesn't understand the process that's actually happening. After receiving the prize, he moves with his family to America. That's to get away from new laws in Italy that would affect his Jewish wife, mm. Laura. He takes a position at Columbia University, New York. And after hearing that nuclear fission has been discovered, is a thing, he goes, oh, that's what I did. <laughs> Oh, it is. Oh, it is possible. Okay, wait, that is hilarious. I had no idea that that's what was happening with Fermi. I thought he knew all along and he was like, oh, looking back now. Like, nah, nah, it's not. Oh, 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 you've done it. Oh, so oh. that's. Okay. Oh, that's what I did. Uh, okay, okay, got good, it. Good, yeah, yeah. Just put my stamp on history there. Um, and he starts building the first <laughs> nuclear reactor. These first nuclear reactors are built in interesting places, shall we say. So this first one is built in the basement of Pupin Hall at, at Columbia. Oh, that sounds safe. So, you know, just underneath your feet. Yeah. And a group of French scientists then suggest that a chain reaction may be possible. And Fermi's like, right, I want to try that. Let's get to work on this. And so a chain reaction, uh, as these atoms are being split, producing energy, producing neutrons, that's what would give us a lot of energy, like say for a fusion power plant. Is that what they're thinking at the time? Like they want to use this kind of energy for something useful? Uh, Yes. Yeah, I, I guess it's mainly theoretical, but they're thinking about the potential applications. Just to expand on the science a little bit. You know, fission, as we said, it started by firing a neutron at that large nucleus. And then if more neutrons are released in the process, then they could then be used to hit other. Ah, so it grows and grows and grows. It's like an yeah. exponential situation. Yeah, it's a self-sustaining chain reaction. I see. So this has all been happening while Wu uh, has finished off her PhD, including Fermi's lecture, actually, where he warns military leaders of the potential impact of nuclear energy. Mm, so he's thinking about it. There's, there's so much more I could tell you about Fermi, but this is Wu's story. So I want to jump forwards to when their paths cross. One last thing to mention, though, before that happens, because this, again, is bonkers. Fermi moves to the University of Chicago to work on the first plutonium nuclear reactor. It's planned to be built in some woods, 20 miles from Chicago. Right. Good site. Get it. Fermi, however, persuades them to build the first plutonium nuclear reactor in the squash court under the stands of the University of Chicago's football stadium. Fermi, what are you doing? (laughs) Is it because he just doesn't want to trek out to the woods? (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Wait, that's so funny. And actually, Fermi Lab is outside of Chicago still. It's another national laboratory. It's a research lab. And I get it's probably named after Fermi and his squash court. (laughs) After the team show that it does work, they do actually carefully dismantle it, essentially, and move it out to that site, the originally intended site. But I was just like, oh, gosh. Anyway, jumping forward. Uh, to 1944. Fermi is now at somewhere called the Hanford site. So this is on the, the uh, Columbia River. In Washington State? In Washington, yeah. All was going well at the uh, the Hanford site and until it didn't. His, his reactor unintentionally shut down. Then it started up again. Then it shut down again. Ooh. And they were like, what on earth is happening? No one could figure it out. Now it's time for CS Wu to enter Fermi's mm. life and solve this problem. But we'll get to that after this. We're back. So Fermi's reactor is playing up. 
We're in Washington. It's starting. It's stopping. Nobody knows what's going on. Legend has it that someone suggests that Fermi... Ask Miss Wu is the quote, what she was referred to, as well as Madam Wu, as well as C.S. Wu. And he does exactly that. She comes along, she takes a look. The she runs of all wisdom. a bunch of experiments back in the lab. And she concludes that there is a buildup of xenon, which is a byproduct of the fission that's going on. Nerdy details for anyone like me who I'm loves ready. these. So xenon is normally inert. What's well, so funny? I We say it's xenon. I, yep, got oh. it. Oh, well, yeah, xenon. Uh, <laughs> And basically, we realised that a particular isotope, a particular type of that xenon, xenon, xenon. was being produced that, that was capturing those neutrons. And you need those neutrons hitting all the other So it's stopping nuclei. the self-sustaining chain reaction. Correct. It's halting it in its tracks because there's too much buildup of xenon. Correct, yeah. So she figures that out. They realise how they can change the design. And from that, they get the, run, the, the reactor back up running smoothly again. So we've got C.S. Wu, who was denied a, a research position, you know, at places back on the East Coast and the West Coast. And she's the one who comes in and solves this problem. Everybody, I just think, okay, uh, this makes me so angry that like she doesn't get... To be a researcher. And yet there's enough knowledge in the community that she's an expert that everybody says you should ask Wu. And it's like, okay, we'll hire her. Dang it. <laughs> yeah. And most of her colleagues are being uh, recruited into the Manhattan Project, mm-hmm. the, the top secret research and development team that's essentially looking to produce nuclear weapons for use in World War II. Fermi's success means that Oppenheimer brings him on board. C.S. Wu, though, no. What basically happens is she gets sick of this situation, unsurprisingly. Yeah, I, you would. She then gets in touch with Ernest Lawrence and she says, look, I'm frustrated at working at Smith College. She's an assistant professor. She's not yet a professor professor. She really misses being in the lab. Lawrence writes her a bunch of letters of recommendations, Thanks, sends Lawrence. them to various leading institutions and she gets quick responses from eight and offers. Of course. Bloody patriarchy. I mean, <laughs> thank you, Lawrence, for being an ally, but also... I'm angry about it. <laughs> so she accepts the offer from Princeton University. Good for and her. she becomes the institution's first female professor. Woohoo. Shortly after that, she is recruited into the Manhattan Project, moves down to New York. She gets to work in a warehouse that's owned by Columbia University. Just that sort of image. I just kind of there's something about that I love. <laughs> like clandestine warehouse. Warehouse. Love Secret it. project. And she's much closer as well to Yuan, which is oh, uh, yeah, thumbs good. up. And there were actually quite a few women working on the Manhattan Project, but she was only one of a handful working working in the physics team Mm. and believed to be the only Chinese person there. Wow. Man, good for her. I'm so glad that they finally recognized her enough to bring her on to be part of the team. And I feel like it's such a good example of the fact that you have to have someone advocate for you to make change. You have to have someone who's on the inside of the privileged set of people who says, no, this person needs to be a part of this. We all need to use our voices for that. So what was she doing? Well, over to Haim. She... Um, helped or work on the uranium enrichment part of the project because uh, most of the uranium actually comes as uranium-238. And, you know, for this uh, chain reaction, you really need uranium-235. So I think she, I don't know the detail, but she contributed to the that part of the project, which is important to the whole project. Right, so you need the fissionable material. Yeah, and she's working on producing that, essentially. Let's jump forward. August the 6th, 1945. The American bomber, Enola Gay, drops a five-ton nuclear bomb onto the Japanese city of Hiroshima. The blast has the same power as 15,000 tonnes of TNT. It decimates four square miles of the city. It kills 80,000 people 
in an instant. Jesus. Tens of thousands more die in the weeks and months afterwards. And three days later, another bomb is dropped on the city of Nagasaki, killing 40,000 more. A few days later, Japan announces its surrender. I wanted to kind of touch on this with Haiyan. I was like, what will CS Wu feel like Mm -hmm. when that happens? Yeah. Most physicists felt bad about when a major science, you know, discovery or advancement in science can be turned into devastating weapon, right? A, a weapon of mass destruction. This is really hard to talk about. And I imagine CS as someone who is so committed to her science, she's so passionate about it. She is living for this work and asking these questions because she's curious about the way the world works and, and wants to know more about our atomic universe. To have it appropriated or to have it be put towards this devastating and completely world-changing event of the atomic bomb, I can't even imagine how that feels as a scientist or the choices that you have to make in that scenario, especially coming from her very unique perspective as a Chinese woman whose life has been very personally affected by Japanese invasion of China. We do have to say the atomic bombs were essential to the way that history has played out Mm. since since then. Mm. But devastating nonetheless. Yeah. yeah, it's really tricky. Science doesn't happen in a vacuum. It can be, you know, the applications and the extensions of that science are sometimes unknown. But they always have sometimes to be known. thought about. We're yeah. never doing research just for research's sake. It's yeah. always going to be used for something. And people always want to think of science as this totally... Objective. Yeah, this entity that's t- totally separate from any bias or mm. any any person. It's like, hello, scientists are real people, people and therefore... Therefore, you know, science is Come with all the, all the other baggage, <laughs> social, political, cultural. Exactly. So you can never consider science just as the facts, just as the data, just as the research. It always has to be considered in the context of the time, the people doing it, who's funding it, all of that stuff. So uh, and I said I'd mention her dad again. She hears from the family and it turns out that her dad, clearly a brilliant human being, um, he's actually helped build the Burma Road, which enabled allies to send supplies to Chinese troops. So he was, he'd basically been considered guy. a war hero. Wu's story does not end there, though. Uh, she's yet to do one of her most amazing pieces of work, proving something that people firmly believed wrong. <laughs> After the war, she's offered a professor position at Columbia University uh, uh, to investigate beta decay. So beta decay, basically, um, so as you know, neutrons and protons, these are the nucleons. They are the building blocks of atomic nuclei. And neutron and proton, in many ways, are very similar to each other. Uh, but of course, you know, neutron is neutral and proton has a charge. And the other thing is neutron is just a little bit heavier than proton. So what can happen is neutron can actually decay into a proton by uh, having two additional particles to go with it. So neutron can turn itself into a proton and uh, there will be an electron and anti-neutrino. So that is the call, that process itself is called uh, neutron beta decay. She was really the world expert on that. In fact, I uh, was um, very actually um, amazed. She did experiment to confirm a very important part of the physics. I mean, she just keeps knocking it out of the park. 
when it comes to nuclear physics, right? She just keeps working on these amazing cutting edge things. So we talked about alpha decay earlier. So that's when something radioactive breaks apart and it spits out an alpha particle, which we Mm -hmm. know is uh, two protons, two neutrons. So now we're talking about beta decay, which is essentially a different type of radioactive decay. A beta particle is emitted, which is an energetic electron okay, uh, or a positron. We don't need to go into that. And despite others not being able to do so, Wu makes the first confirmation of Enrica Fermi's theory of beta decay. Woo! She's doing it. She also gives birth to a son, Vincent Yuan. (laughs) Casual? Yeah, in 1947. He actually grows up following in his parents' footsteps to become a physicist. Oh, I love that so much. Just rather wonderful. A whole family. And I, I mean, I have so much to say about that. But like the idea that she is contributing to these fundamental ideas of what we understand about the atom. And then she's also just, you know, being a mom. Yep, very impressive. <laughs> very impressive. Let's fast forward to 1956. So she's got this real reputation for beta decay expertise by now. Uh, and she's approached by two theoretical physicists, Sung Du Lao and Qin Ning Yang, and to essentially prove a fundamental law of nature wrong. It's called the Law of Conservation of Parity. What the heck is parity, Okay, Greg? here we go. Here we go. Pull on the waders. I need to and know. And let's get in there. Right, so I read a really nice analogy. Imagine someone throwing a baseball with their right hand. If you look in a mirror, it's going to look like they're throwing it with their left hand. Sure. You know, that whole kind of weird left-right thing yeah, when you look in a okay. mirror. But the laws of physics will remain the same. The same, you know, the ball's going to behave as per the laws of physics in both those images, both the mirror image and the and the normal image. Sure. So the nerdy way of describing it is if you had a vector, let's say R, then in the mirror, that vector would be flipped over. So it would be minus R. It would be pointing the other way. And the laws of physics are going to work for R just like they work for minus R. You're pulling a face. I'm pulling a big face. Okay. My face is... I kind of want to. I kind of want to carry on with this one. It, it does get like deep. No, no, no. I'm ready. I'm ready. I can. I'm, I'm I here can for handle it. it, Greg. All right, over to Haiyan. Uh, you know, symmetry, as I said, is uh, so important to physicists, and we believe you know nature is always prefers something to be very simple and beautiful and symmetric. So, um, so this kind of parity uh, inversion or reflection is one of the symmetry uh, physicists actually held deeply. Uh, you know, we believe that, you know, electromagnetic interaction and strong interaction and at that time we also thought physicists saw weak interaction should all preserve parity, which means that if you can imagine you turn this vector from one direction to, you know, opposite, 180 degree opposite, okay, it should not affect, you know, your experiment or your whatever observation you are making. But Lee and Yang, when they look at um, the kind of experimental evidence at the time from different kind of processes, okay, they actually realize that parity or this particular symmetry can be violated. So this is a big claim. Basically, this thing that we believed in physics that was at the core of physics, symmetry, beautiful, wonderful, as, as she said, these two physicists are suggesting it can be violated. They want to turn it upside down. These guys are troublemakers. So Wu starts focusing on this problem solidly for six months. She has an amazing team of physicists who are helping her. And she works on radioactive cobalt. And it needs to be very low temperatures. So she gets access to uh, to the super cool, super cooled equipment <laughs> at the National Bureau of Standards. I see what she did there. <laughs> um, in Washington, D.C. So cutting a long story short, Two days after Christmas, 1956, Wu and the team are all set and ready for their first test. With supercooled radioactive cobalt. Yes. Now, from what I understand, and again, forgive me, because 
although I'm well into physics, this is properly complex particle <laughs> physics. Get right? into it. Basically, they use these cobalt nuclei. There's a term in physics called spin, which isn't exactly the spin you kind of imagine, but run with it. Essentially, the nuclei of this radioactive cobalt, the spin is in one direction and some of it, the spin is in the other direction, okay. like the mirror image of sure. that thing, right? Like we were talking about the two mirror images of persons wearing the ball, right, we're all looking, these, we're all these two kind of vectors. Symmetry. Yeah, we're looking to see if things behave the same way or indeed if they don't and if they don't then you're mm. violating this this idea of symmetry this idea of parity and what they're doing is they're looking at the direction that electrons fling off as as the uh, the cobalt decays and if the laws of physics remain the same for all objects and their mirror images then the electrons should all eject symmetrically so like equally in both directions however they run the experiment and boom they fly off in lots of different directions leading one of the team to scribble in the notebook parity not conserved Ooh. A fundamental law of physics that people believe to be true, they've just shown, is not. That's a paradigm-changing sentence right there, so scribbled in a that's, notebook. That's why I wanted, I thought it was worth getting into this. Because I agree. You know, there's some amazing stuff that CS Wu does, incredible, that this, this, right, although it's complex, is... Yeah, as you said, paradigm shifting. Well, and also, can you imagine, like, she's coming off of, you know, she's got a really good reputation now. She is highly respected in her field. She is a very prominent physicist. And these guys come to her and are like, hey, listen, we need to maybe, like, rewrite the laws of nature. And she's like, yeah, okay, sounds good. I'll I mean, that's, go. a, that's a big risk on her part, right? So she's got to really believe in it. Especially or, for six months of work. Yeah, at least be just very committed to asking the deepest questions about how the universe works. So picture this moment. It's two o'clock in the morning. It's January the 9th, 1957. The team cracks open a bottle of champagne and they celebrate. <laughs> and as Wu says in a later interview, these are moments of exaltation and ecstasy. A glimpse of this wonder can be the reward of a lifetime. Oh my God, I love her. Oh. Her inner nerd coming out. She's so psyched. That discovery is huge. This is a major thing for physics, for nature, right? We discover you know, one of the four fundamental forces, in this case, weak force, breaks parity symmetry. The next day, the New York Times runs a front page story with the headline that says, shattering of a fundamental concept of nuclear physics. Of course, newspaper headline. The result shakes the world <laughs> of physics and a Nobel Prize quickly follows. But not. For Lee and Yang, but not. Oh, that really grinds my gears. I asked Haiyan for her thoughts. You know, uh, I'm trying to leave any kind of non-science issue alone. Understandable. Okay. So she did say that this could be because a Nobel Prize can only be given to a maximum of three people. And actually, as well as Madame Wu, there were other people doing experiments on parity elsewhere. But, you know, she does kind of expand. But maybe there are some other issues, you know, such as... Uh, she being a woman, I mean, I certainly have read people who wrote about uh, history or uh, women's contribution were overlooked uh, in history. And, uh, you know, this also uh, would be possible. Now, I do know that there are other examples when the where the theoreticians get the Nobel Prize and, not the and the experimentalists don't. Mm. So this isn't necessarily a sexist or a racist thing, you know, it, but it does feel like an unfair well, thing, but I it's mean, not necessarily so. I think like it's definitely worth saying that there are other things at play, but I think we would be really naive to say that those things, that the race and gender aren't at play, especially at this time. Like, I think they definitely play a role. So time to wrap this up, really. But it's worth saying that her genius does not stop there. Right. I in, can imagine. In 1958, she helps answer an important biological question about blood and sickle cell anemia. Really? Uh, she becomes the first woman to serve as the president of the American Physical Society. Yes, girl. Yes, girl. And despite not getting the Nobel Prize, she's 
widely honoured elsewhere, including being inducted into the United States National Women's Hall of Fame, even becoming the first living scientist to have an asteroid named after her. Ooh. Asteroid 2752, the Wu Chinsheng. That might be better than a Nobel Prize, to be honest. <laughs> How many people have that? Right? She dies in New York in 1997, and I asked Haiyan what Madame Wu's legacy should be. I think her legacy as a scientist, um, even though, you know, she was my role model or has been my role model, but I really think that she was just an outstanding, great scientist, period. And um, she happened to be a woman, okay, but she was just a great scientist. Uh, I think her legacy as a scientist was her, you know, the way she, I mean, it was just amazing because I'm an experimentalist and I know how difficult it is, but I think her experiment, I mean, she was able to do those experiments in a very convincing and reliable way at the same time, very beautiful way and very, when I say simple, it doesn't mean the experiment itself was simple, but simple means the physics is very, you know, clean and the beautiful and uh, simple. It's elegant. I love yeah. I love the description of physics as elegant. And I love Hyan's note about, yes, she was a woman and she had to contend with some obstacles because of that during her time as a physicist. But she's also just an incredible scientist yeah, like number she should one, be remembered she's a scientist for she just happens to be a woman exactly yeah. exactly and and this designation of like oh a female scientist is like yes we need to take into context you know where people are coming from and the attitudes of the times but I, Wu fundamentally changed physics and that is her role and i just love the amount of respect that she's no. getting from Hyen. right clearly you know Hyen Gao, a fantastic incredible professor of physics at Duke University, top of top of top, right? And she's just kind of loving and respecting C.S. Wu's science, her detail, her beauty, clarity. And there's just something really wonderful about that. Well, and now after hearing her story, I feel the same way. Like I've, I never heard about Wu particularly. I heard about the cyclotron. I've heard about the Manhattan Project. I've heard about, you know, this parody situation, but I've never heard of Wu specifically. And now after hearing her story, I feel the same way as Haiyan. I want Wu looking down at me from, you know, my, my wall, a little portrait of her just saying like, you gotta be committed. <laughs> I'm going to end with a quote actually from C.S. Wu. She says, science is not static, but is dynamic and ever improving. It is the courage to doubt what has long been believed and the incessant search for verification and proof that pushes the wheels of science forward. Oh. She was an amazing scientist. We should end with those words about science. Agree. Absolute pleasure. I loved hearing about Wu, Greg. Thank you so much for telling us her story. I hope lots more people now know who she is and feel inspired by her and her work. And so if you liked this episode, please do rate and review the show. It really helps us grow and tell your friends. We've yeah. got more episodes coming soon. So we hope that you subscribe to catch all of those. Let everybody know that they should listen to. And if you have a story from science history that you want to hear us tell or a discovery or an invention that you want to know the story behind, then please email us at brilliant at seeker.com. That's brilliant at seeker.com. Credits time then. Surprisingly Brilliant is a podcast from Seeker. Today's episode was researched, written and produced by me, Greg Foote. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Greg 
foot, G-R-E-G-F-O-O-T. And it was listened to and very much enjoyed. Great job, Greg, by me, Marin Hunsberger. I'm at Marin B on Instagram, at Marin Hunsberger on Twitter, and at Marin Hunsberger on YouTube. Our expert producer was Emily Feld. Our editor was Jeremy Schmidt. Uh, our studio engineer was Ariella Markowitz. Our supervising producer was David Zwick. And our excellent executive producers are Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Hadakador. Finally, another huge, huge thanks to our guest expert, uh, Professor Haiyan Gao from Duke University. She was incredible. Loved her. We'll see you for another one. It's going to be yours next. I'm so excited. Got a good one lined up? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Speak to you soon. Bye.